0: Many South Asian mental health therapists are leveraging Instagram, TikTok, and other channels to emerge as thought leaders and influencers. This is all very beneficial for drumming up awareness and brand building. But what is the challenging reality of being a South Asian therapist in private practice in 2024? What is toxic gratitude? When does being thankful give way to inadequacy, shame, and invalidation of powerful feelings? And how can this, quote, self-gaslighting manifest in issues with mental and physical health for members of the South Asian diaspora? And what does it mean to be the, quote, bad Indian therapist? How does a Columbia University-trained therapist provide a platform and safe space for Indian Americans who think they are not Indian enough or feel guilt for not conforming to the norms of our collectivist culture? Stay tuned as we touch on these and many other topics on this week's episode of Untether Your Life. Welcome to Untether Your Life, a show that empowers you to break free of templates related to career, relationships, and managing mental and physical health, and looks at key issues impacting the South Asian diaspora. I am your host, Nikhil Zakar and I'm passionate about the power of conversation to catalyze change. This podcast takes aim squarely at the templates that many of us in the South Asian diaspora grew up with around the ideal career path, marriage, and managing our mental health. It's therefore very gratifying to connect with others in the community who question the norms and fight against a status quo that has caused us great turmoil over the years. One of these iconoclasts is Tracy Cherry, the, quote, bad Indian therapist. Tracy is a licensed therapist in New York, California, and Florida. She helps South Asian Americans who struggle with toxic guilt, shame, and cultural stress and trauma. She continues to challenge her own toxic guilt and shame as it relates to cultural norms about mental health. Tracy is currently taking on new clients in New York, California, and Florida. And with that, let's get untethered. So Tracy, again, it's great to have you on the show. Is there anything else you want to add beyond what I had shared there?
1: No, I think that that's, that's pretty good.
0: Great. So, yeah, I mean, I think as I was telling you before the show, what really drew my attention about your platform is just the title, uh, The Bad Indian Therapist. You know, we live in a world where everyone's trying to be the best or good or greater, but you're kind of owning (laughs) that term bad. So if you can talk to us a little bit about the rationale behind that, just the branding, uh, The Bad Indian Therapist.
1: The rationale behind calling myself The Bad Indian Therapist is, that there's a lot of unwritten rules about what it means to fit in to the culture, about what's okay and what's not okay. And that sometimes we think that honoring your individual desires is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It means like being part of a community and that somehow it makes you less Indian, or it makes you whitewashed, or not Indian right. enough.
0: Or A-B- or ABCD, I'm sure you've heard that term. That-
1: ABCD, coconut, whatever that means. Yeah. Of course, there is some elements of where our desires come from, maybe heavily influenced and conditioned by desire to succeed and survive in American society that you know comes with assimilation and Other forms of discrimination, of course, but I think this idea that if you have individual desires, that that means you are not Indian or not Indian enough Mm -hmm. is not at all an accurate way of what it means to belong to our community. I think the most perfect way I could summarize this is that there was like a tweet that came out recently from a pretty like well-known Indian American guy. I forgot his name, but he runs a Twitter account and he basically said Indian student organizations on college campuses should be more focused on watching Bollywood movies and eating samosas and not fighting for social justice.
0: This was uh, an Indian person who posted this?
1: This was an Indian American man who posted Mm. this and it kind of makes you question well is that what is that what we're all about hollywood movies and samosas don't you think that's a little superficial so for me i call myself the bad indian therapist because it's kind of a satirical take on this idea that there is any such thing as a good Indian. If I'm going to be a bad Indian for making it okay to be yourself and belong to a community, then so be it. I'm a bad Indian. And I like to call the people who follow me like South Asian misfit.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love it. I mean, I think that resonates a lot and it aligns with the mission of this podcast, which is, you know, untethering your life because I think you can attest to this as well, is that I think we grew up with a lot of programming. We grew up with a lot of uh, what I call templates for what it means to be a a good member of the South Asian diaspora. You know, there's the get the top grades. There's the do million extracurriculars, get married, you know, all that stuff that really comes from a lot of this, these fifties sitcoms, you know, like leave it to beaver, just this very, yeah, like you said, a, a very whitewashed conception of what quote unquote making it in America is. And so, yeah, it's always very refreshing to come across people who are ripping up those templates and not necessarily maybe changing someone's opinion, but at least questioning it because it's amazing that, you know, you and I both grew up in this country and I don't know if you found this, but there are so many people who... Even though they know the limitations and even though they know the scars that some of the scripts left on them, you know, in terms of our parents didn't really have a choice, right? They had to come here. They, and I'm not excusing this by any means, I'm just giving the context, but a lot of the decisions they made were shaped by that scarcity mindset and that need to survive in this brand new ecosystem that was completely foreign to them. And so I think with the collectivist mindset, there's a lot of, tendency to excuse a lot of toxic behaviors, you know, like there's that auntie at the temple who always insults you about your weight or why you aren't going into the best colleges, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think that it is really good to connect with folks like yourself who are saying, hey, you know, this, we got to draw a line in the sand and no more of this BS that we were saddled with. And I guess that brings me to my next question in terms of kind of what brought you into your career as a, as a mental health, practitioner, but also just, you know, kind of kind of like how the cultural component factored into that. Because mm-hmm. as you know, I mean, South Asians, I think mental health has been, it's kind of a new concept, right? It was always sort of seen traditionally as a, as a Western or white person thing. You know, mm-hmm. we really didn't look at mental health, but I would love if you could add some context to that, Tracy, in terms of your uh, upbringing and your background uh, and how that factored into that decision.
1: I'm the therapist for the South Asian Misfits who feel like they're the black sheep of the family, who march to the beat of their own drummer, were the runt of the household. And that's who I was. And mm-hmm. by deliberately choosing this career path, I had to take the road less traveled, and I had to march to the beat of my own drummer, right? I Mm -hmm. did the non-traditional career path for many South Asian Americans that I knew, and I was one of very few South Asian American therapists who entered the field in, I'd say, 2017. I actually technically entered the field in 2015. That's when I went to grad Mm -hmm. school. I kind of knew since an early age that I did not want to do the traditional path, but I kind of went along with what my parents wanted sure. for a long time up until maybe junior year of college. And I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a therapist. But like, it never occurred to me at that point that I wanted to be a therapist for other South Asian Americans like me. It was oh, I want to be a therapist on college campuses or I want to work in university res life.
0: Going to venture here, a uh, guess, were you pre-med up until that point or what, what, what had you been studying up until that point?
1: I was pre-pharmacy.
0: Okay, yep. yep, very common, yep.
1: I was pre-pharmacy and my parents never pressured quote unquote me into it, but sure. it was always like indirect. It was like, you should be a pharmacist. You should mm-hmm. be a pharmacist. Not like you have to be a pharmacist. The repetition right. of it. gentle
0: nudge (laughs) or not so gentle maybe (laughs) yeah
1: it enforces a message so that shoulder tapping to kind of like get you to do it and when i first started out in this field it didn't occur to me that maybe there are other south asian americans who need a voice from someone Mm -hmm. like me until maybe about two years ago and I didn't think that I was gonna get any South Asian American clients because when I first created a South Asian therapist.org profile, I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. I don't think Indian people go to therapy. That, that was very much my spe- and specifically Indian That was your
0: that was your mindset at the time. Yeah.
1: Specifically Indian people don't go to therapy. And that was me as an Indian American therapist believing this. Sure. Because I never got I mean an Indian American client. Well, I shouldn't say never. I I did Mm -hmm. get maybe three or four Indian American clients who were like, I really want to work with you. And this was before I created the South Asian therapist.org profile. I was like, why? Like, (laughs) I I market at that point, I was marketing to anyone and everyone, not just South Asian Americans. And then it occurred to me that like, actually, like South Asian Americans may really want to speak with me because they feel like I wouldn't be a judgmental therapist. I was like, okay. I, I had actually taken a poll once on my Instagram account of if you would see a South Asian American therapist or not. And many Indian Americans said no, that they would not.
0: Oh, they they explicitly said they wouldn't. Okay. I'm just curious. Did you get the explanations that went along with those responses or was it just like, what? and what was their rationale?
1: The general rationale was like, they wouldn't understand me. They wouldn't get who I am. They might judge me for not being... Mm aligned with the culture, the cultural values. They might impose some of the cultural norms onto me and I don't want that. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Taking that feedback was helpful for me to understand what South Asian clients actually need, which is somebody who is going to question the cultural norms and not uphold them. So When I created the South Asian Therapist.org profile, it was shocking how many clients at that point just came rolling in. And I realized this is who I like to work with. Like, I feel like there's some Mm -hmm. kind of bond there over like a a shared cultural identity, but also a shared experience of, yeah, I'm not like other South Asian American therapists. I'm not like other South Asian Americans and maybe that's okay. It doesn't mean I don't believe in community. It doesn't mean that I, I don't support my community. I'm also allowed to be my own person. You can have both. And my big thing, because I think there's like so much criticism over, especially in the therapist community, there's a lot of criticism about being so focused on the individual instead of community. And mm-hmm. I think that living in America kind of teaches us that individualism and community clash. I don't think- Yeah, it's
0: that- like a, a binary option, right? Yeah.
1: Right. And I think that individuality and community can coincide with each other and have, I, for lack of a better word, a symbiotic relationship. There's nothing wrong with having community.
0: Think of it as a, as a continuity, right? Or as a continuum, because one of the guests we had on our show previously, her name is uh, Nilou Carr. She is a executive coach, really interesting platform she has. She has this notion of the I, we speedometer, where it's like in certain contexts, you have to embrace that individualistic frame of reference, right? You have to champion yourself. And her book is called Be Your Own Cheerleader. And then there's other contexts, especially in the South Asian diaspora, where you do have to, don't just like defer to the herd per se, but you do have to acknowledge that a lot of these decisions, a lot of these norms are informed by a broader, more collectivist mindset. But yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's an either or type thing, but go ahead.
1: I would love to learn more about the IWE speedometer. I think that's a great concept. I think that one of the greatest traits that we have is that we're so attuned to other people's needs and other people's emotions, right? Like, that's part of right. being a community. But because we're so attuned to other people's needs, we don't stop to question what our community is saying is even okay. It's good right. to be attuned to somebody else's needs, But you also have to question their values. You know, it's good to have community, but you also have to question who your community is. Look around you, look at their beliefs, look at their values, look at their character. Do a little character assessment. Are these the people whose emotions you want to be attuned to? Like, I think sometimes we forget that you have to come home to yourself and you have to be... Your own individual and belong to yourself in order to belong to not just one community, but multiple communities. I don't think that being your own person and being an individual is at a disservice to community. I think that it could actually strengthen your relationships to multiple different communities.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I I do think that we just, I, I feel like a lot of the decisions that were made in the past, you know, with our parents' generation, again, It was based on survival because they didn't really have anybody else. And so there were a lot of allowances made and there were a lot of sweeping under the rug, really a lot of abusive behaviors from others in the community and also just judging, making a judgment about someone's character, about their worth based on really artificial symbols like where they went to college or what kind of house they lived in. That is all BS as we're finding out. There's more to it than just sort of what what is on paper for sure. The cultural aspect is one thing that is interesting about your platform and your background, but I do want to touch on something else that I don't think really anybody else is talking about, at least in the South Asian community, but that is the challenges of being in private practice because you see a lot of South Asian therapists on, you know, and we've had them on the show. Amara Khalid is an example that uh, you had a, you had an IG Live with, and she's the one who introduced us. So Amara, if you're listening, thank you. But I wanted to mention that there is this facade, right? There's this image that being a therapist, it's almost like, you know, being like a celebrity, being an influencer. And, you know, you get to make these eye-catching pieces of content that go viral, et cetera. But there is a, a darker and a harsher reality to it. So I would love to Understand your journey, you know, from I think it was in group practice and now mm-hmm. you're in private practice. So if you could kind of talk us through that a little bit about that journey.
1: Yeah. Uh sometimes I occasionally get like informational interviews from South Asian American recent grads from master's programs in social work and counseling psychology. And they usually call me in distress because they found out this mm. field isn't what they thought it was. And that was my realization too. I think that my concern that i have with a lot of people who are entering the field of counseling psychology and the field of social work hoping to become private practice therapists is that they go into it thinking like this is going to be extremely lucrative the money's going to come easy right. and it's not going to be challenging work and There's a part of me that's, I don't want to discourage them. I don't want to dissuade them because there is a therapist shortage. So we do need more therapists and I think they're right to aspire for those things. I do think that every therapist should be paid well and that we should also be taken seriously and valued, you know, and I'm not saying that it's not entirely impossible. It is, it is possible I also think that there's a part of me that's like, I don't want them to come into this bright eyed and pushy tailed and then be let down
0: disillusioned. Yeah, exactly. I don't
1: want them to become disillusioned. Exactly. So there's a part of me that's like, I want to manage expectations. I went into this field thinking that I was going to be a therapist on college campuses. I got my master's Mm in psychology in New York from Columbia, which is a really great school. But Mm -hmm. You know, I ended up not working in a college setting because most of the college campuses in New York State, they want to hire either a licensed clinical social worker with like 10 plus years of experience or Mm -hmm. with a PhD, someone with massive debt, years of experience to not even be paid enough to like pay off their student loans. It was hard for me to even find a hospital job. For the most part, because they mostly wanted mm. social workers. And I was warned towards like the end of my grad school that your first job is not going to be what you thought it was. And I hopefully now like the field is changing and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that they're pre licensed therapists who are already starting in private practice, starting their own private practice, which is great. But mm. my first entry into the field of therapy was working for a nonprofit that did family therapy and received family therapy referrals from the administration Mm -hmm. of children's services. So these were families who have like ACS cases are regulated by the government and we would have to go to their homes and do family therapy. And at times crisis intervention where things got really ugly and also sometimes having to call Nine one one, or get someone hospitalized, or even call ACS again and report another case of suspected child abuse and neglect. I was also doing case management. Like this is not yeah. what I said before. This is I didn't learn about this when I went to Columbia, and I was doing. Did, to- did you feel
0: pretty disillusioned, sort of seeing that uh, the reality on the ground then?
1: Yeah, I felt very disillusioned. I was, and I was getting a ton of like my first six months at this job. I was getting a ton of feedback that reinforced this idea that I'm not good enough, really mm. reinforced my imposter syndrome. And like six months into this, December of 2017, I was interviewing with headhunters for any job. It didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter if it was-
0: you're Not even in mental health, you're saying just any any job.
1: I interviewed for a PR agency. I was like, I wanted out so badly. I need yeah. out so badly. And then- At some point, the PR recruiter got back to me and they're like, you know, hey, the market's kind of slow right now, so you're probably not going to find a job. And that's when I had to learn that, like, I just got to take this job for what it is, try my best, see what can happen. And that was a period of growth for me when I got really strong with my family therapy skills at that time. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a walk in the park. It wasn't a cakewalk. I was burned out because that's what happens is that usually the places that are hiring that will give pre-licensed therapists the clinical hours they need to apply for licensure also give you stable benefits with health insurance, dental insurance, retirement plan, you name it. It's going to be right. like a nonprofit or agency job, but that means that they severely underpay you. Um at some point I was so burned out that I ended up working for a group practice where I learned more of my individual therapy skills. But it was also not that great either because I was fee-for-service. I didn't have benefits. It was actually terrible. There were moments where I walked into the office with like a broken toe or a broken leg, no cast or anything. And my clients would- Oh, because
0: you couldn't afford afford therapy, you're saying.
1: I couldn't afford healthcare. Wow. And I was literally, my clients saw me limping and I'm like, there's no way this is like setting off a good image of how their therapist self cares. But I was also overworked and burned out because I realized very quickly that fee for service means that unless you see a client, you're not you're not getting paid if you don't see a client. And if you're not getting benefits, you have to pay for that yourself. I think my first month in private practice, as I was like getting clients, which that group practice that I worked for was very horrible at marketing themselves. I made maybe about like $900 in private practice that month. And my rent was like $1,300. And that was with roommates in New York. This is not to create like a pity party or anything. Like I'm I, I'm not sure. asking for pity. I'm just trying to be very realistic with what new therapists, new grads might expect. And to not let that discourage you as you collect your clinical hours. I think that something happened with that too, where I was like, I'm so burned out by this, I need health insurance, that I ended up getting a job at Rikers. And I went Riker,
0: Rikers Island, the, the prison?
1: At Rikers wow. Island, the <laughs> yeah. jail system in New York City. And I wanna be very clear that I did not work for Rikers. I did not work for the Department of Corrections. I worked under a division of New York City's health and hospital systems that was called Correctional Health, okay. that was pseudo city, government a little bit. It was through it was like half nonprofit, half city. It was a weird bureaucracy thing. But I was never an employee of Department of Corrections. I want to make that very clear okay. before so were, I
0: mean were you physically going into the correctional facility then or
1: I was I was working on Rikers Island Turf essentially. Oh. And my job was to do mental health assessments. And it was basically to make sure that someone who was coming in an incarcerated patient who was recently incarcerated was not severely mentally ill, could be housed in general population, and was not at immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. But that was what I like to call boundaries boot camp, because there's a ton mm-hmm. of personalities in jail. And then sure. there are the incarcerated patients. So right. you're dealing with a ton of people who think they can tell you how to do your job, people who don't have anywhere near your level of experience, who think or education. Right. They can tell you how to do your job. And I was just curious,
0: what, what was that like as a South Asian? Sorry to interrupt, but what was that like as a South Asian? I mean, I can imagine there's probably not a lot of South Asians in that environment or were there. I was just curious.
1: Maybe like one or two, but not really. I I think that I, most of my colleagues were Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean. I think that I was probably the only staff member I knew who was south asian american and now i'm a little bit bigger i weightlift now but back then i used to be very tiny mm. and it was very well known to everyone that i was tiny so i would deliberately have to dress a certain way just make it it's a different world you, you can't mm, sure. you're a woman working in jail you can't dress as feminine as you would like so i have to make it very clear that i'm to be taken seriously and i think that there were a lot of misconceptions that a lot of in- implicit biases that people held about me because they're like, oh, this, this small Indian girl with glasses, you know, she's not going to talk back. She's not going to, mm-hmm. she's not going to be firm with me. And then I'd be firm with people and it would get me into a lot of trouble. I remember um. I would get, The arguments with captains who don't have nearly like these are like captains who aren't my boss. I don't work for them. I don't work for the Department of Corrections, but like captains who would literally tell me how to do my job would often try and get me to do something that would deliberately go against my license. I would tell them this is not my job. I Mm -hmm. I would just say, not my job. This is not what I do. That's, That's a completely different department. And then those captains went and told my boss that she's angry and aggressive. She's disrespectful. Mm. So I often had to get into arguments and stand up for myself because there were perceptions that like, oh, she's just like this small little South Asian girl. She's not going to argue or talk back. She's like, good work yeah. for me. Take it. And when they found that I wasn't going to take it, suddenly yeah. <laughs> I'm angry and aggressive. All hell broke loose. <laughs> right.
0: And, and how, how long were you at Rikers then?
1: I was at Rikers from September 2019, up until February 2021. So I was there also during COVID. But you know what? It gave me thicker skin. It also showed me just how much privilege I had because I got to know people who were vastly different from me. To your point about how like there's not a lot of South Asian Americans in this field working with me, I realized that I have been to places that most Malayali Indian people have never been. Most Malayali Indian Americans I know would never step foot in. And then some of these Malayali Indian Americans are telling me what to do with my life. So it's mm-hmm. like, right. you have you don't know shit about life. You have not been where I've been. You have not right. gotten to know the people that I've gotten to know. So you can't tell me shit about life. Engage mm-hmm. that thicker skin. So you felt
0: more that- empowered sort of having been through that trial by fire and really having to assert yourself in a environment that, yeah. And I mean, I think South Asian women, it's, it's a very challenging thing because there is this, I think you, you had mentioned like fetishization of this and this projection of this image of being submissive. And there's this sense like, Oh, you have it so much better here. Why don't you just sort of be happy with what you're given as opposed to asserting yourself. And that's, yeah, I'm sure that was uh, pretty jarring Now then, so after Rikers, was that, and that was the transition into the bad Indian therapist or what was the sort of the next after that uh, trial by fire, so to speak?
1: So after Rikers, I was, I was doing private practice part-time around the time that I left Rikers. Mm -hmm. And then I think I started taking it on full-time probably a couple months after that. I was doing something else on the side that didn't pan out and then November mm-hmm. 2021, suddenly found myself full time. And that's when I started to realize I have a real knack for helping South Asian Americans just like me who are too afraid of setting boundaries or what setting boundaries can mean. And, and you used a term that I thought was really like accurate which is like trial by fire right Mm -hmm. and also like the toxic gratitude that we often
0: i was just gonna ask about that was i was hoping we can touch on that as well
1: The toxic gratitude of, you should just be grateful. You should just shut up and take it and just be grateful. And I'm just here to let you know that you are allowed to ask for more. Like, you're not even asking for the bare minimum. This is just, you're asking for your needs. Like, that's not you being selfish. That's not you being ungrateful. Like, you are allowed to ask for more. And I, I think that sometimes when we're so afraid of the worst case scenario... The anxiety, we kind of tell ourselves that we should just be grateful for what we have now. And you can be. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Like That doesn't mean that you can't ask for more respect, that you can't ask for someone to acknowledge your voice and your humanity. I think that sometimes we know what it's like to have things taken away from us that we're so afraid of losing it all. It's hard to believe that you're allowed to ask for more and that it's not going to come at a loss to you?
0: I mean, I I don't know what it's like in this generation, but I know growing up myself and my peers, I mean, the common refrain we heard was, you know, we had it so much worse. And this is not unique to South Asians. I mean, obviously every parent, there's that proverbial, I had to walk eight miles in the snow, (laughs) just tales of woe that we have to sit there and roll our eyes about. But yeah, I I would definitely say uh, being in the South Asian diaspora, that has been, what I always say is there's a line between Gratitude and gaslighting, where it's just like you have to acknowledge the struggles and the striving that your parents made to get here. But I, I just think it's so destructive to invalidate those feelings that you might have because stress is a real thing. You know, as they as there's that book, the body keeps the score. I mean, it it is something that is real. It's not you shouldn't feel any less than, or you shouldn't invalidate that sense of struggle that you face. Right. So I think that. I'd love to if you could talk to me more about that, that concept, because I think it's something that you and I, based on our lived experience and also our cultural background, but yeah, maybe that sort of that toxic gratitude and toxic guilt, if you can touch on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So toxic gratitude is the belief that you should stay silent. You should not ask for your needs. You should not ask for more because you should just be grateful. You should just shut up and take it and just be grateful. And this is a narrative that Not only, first of all, everyone has it, not just South Asian-Americans, but it's especially prominent, I think, among Asian-Americans as a whole. It is often used against Asian-Americans to get more out of us. I think that toxic guilt is when you have been conditioned to believe that all guilt is bad, that you should not Mm -hmm. feel your guilt. And also toxic guilt is when you have been conditioned to feel guilty about things that you should not feel bad about. So toxic guilt is more of like an unhealthy guilt based on conditioned behaviors from the way that somebody else treats you or somebody else's expectations of you. Um, so that that's kind of my framework of toxic guilt. And I tell people that you're not going to know what is quote unquote toxic or unhealthy. You know, toxic is like a pop culture term. It really means like unhealthy sure. You're not going to know the difference between that and then what is healthy for you unless you feel your feelings. You have to feel your feelings because your feelings are trying to tell you something. You need to feel your feelings. And sometimes your feelings are lying to you. Feelings are not facts. But then sometimes your feelings are trying to tell you about something to look out for. It's something that's protecting you, and our feelings usually indicate something about our values and our story. I think that what I find often is that so, especially specifically Indian Americans—not South Asian mm-hmm. American people—but specifically Indian Americans who have achieved some level of success either in the Western world or in the US Mm -hmm. is that we are so unwilling to feel our feelings or we think that if we feel a way about someone or something that makes us bad. That I recently posted about, it was a stitch with this girl whose grandmother told her that the more educated you get, the less men will watch you. And she said, casket, looking it up right now. It's a a joke, (laughs) maybe an awful. joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, a lot of people in the comments are like, you know, you're supposed to have more compassion for your grandmother. How dare you? Yeah. One of her, you're trying to shame her for feeling this yeah. way about grandmother. And I kind of came in and said, like, you're allowed to harbor both negative negative yeah. and love and compassion for your grandmother. And I did a poll related to that. How do you feel about having negative feelings about your grandparents? And there were like about 30% of people said either like, I'm not supposed to have bad feelings or no, it makes me a bad person to harbor bad feelings towards someone I love and care about. And I think there's this idea that because we have love and respect for our elders, that we can't have bad feelings for them or we can't be angry at them. We can't be upset with them. We can't feel resentful towards them. And that if we do experience, quote unquote, negative emotions, Because we're Mm -hmm. upset with something they did that that makes us bad kids or bad grandkids, bad daughters, bad sons. No, it means you're human and you're being honest with yourself. It shows that you have a level of insight. Like, actually, I feel bad. Do you want to live in denial and tell yourself, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. No, it's okay when it's really not okay. If you shove your feelings down, if you shove that feelings down, whatever goes down must come up. And it's going to cut up in ways that you won't even imagine. It's that allostatic Mm -hmm. load of stress on the body. Cortisol. Cortisol, stress, all of it. Physical health concerns. These things are all interconnected. Mental health does not exist in a cookie cutter basket. It's all related.
0: And I think that's a Western... And this could be a whole separate episode and we have had episodes about this but there is this note there's this false compartmentalization in the western world about the mind and body whereas traditions like ayurveda and just some of the more you know eastern i guess you could call them philosophies where it's looking at that mind body connection i think it's making its way more into mainstream mental health but yeah i I just you cannot separate you can't sit there and take on stress at work and then express amazement that you have ulcers or you know that you're in a toxic relationship where you're not being heard and you're invalidating your own feelings that's definitely going to like you said what goes down must must come up tracy this has been a great discussion there was one question i always ask my guests and as you know the title of this podcast is untether your life and it's about breaking free of templates, whether that's career, whether that's health, whatever our parents or society has told us, just basically at least questioning that and ultimately forging your own path. What would you tell listeners based on your experience uh, about what they can do to untether their life?
1: Yeah. I think the things that you should always ask yourself is, is it true? Is it kind? Is it helpful? Uh, You can even ask yourself, is this fair? Is this fair to me? Is this fair to the people I love or care about? Is this always true or is it just mm-hmm. true in some situations? Always asking yourself the who, what, when, where, and why. Who taught me that it's not okay to feel upset with my grandmother? What told mm-hmm. me that it's not okay? What experience told me that it's not okay? Where did I learn this? Start questioning and start getting curious. I think the most important thing that you can do is get curious and be a neutral observer to your own emotions. There's no such thing as bad emotions. There's no such thing as good emotions either. And just because something feels bad does not mean that it is bad for you. You just have to observe your emotions and just notice what comes up. What does it say about your values that are great? What does it say about your values that are not so great? These are all Mm -hmm. important questions to ask yourself. You're not going to get the answer right away, but it comes with building a tolerance to feel our emotions. We have to build an emotional tolerance in order to gain that insight.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that stepping back and just not getting so enmeshed, because that's what I think as South Asians, because of the pressure that we put under ourselves and the pressure of the scripts that we've grown up with, there is that aversion and there's that let's just Grind through it. Let's just put our no- nose to the grindstone, keep our head down. And as we know, this model minority myth, this model minority doesn't turn out to be so model uh, after all. Uh, Tracy, again, it was great having you on the show. If people are looking to get a hold of you or learn more about your services, where can we point them?
1: Yeah, you can visit my website, thebadindiantherapist.com. There should be a link there where you can schedule my a, a free intro call with me if you live in New York, California, or Florida. So just visit my website, thebadindiantherapist.com. You can also follow me at thebadindiantherapist on Instagram, TikTok, and Threads.
0: Well, thank you so much again, Tracy. And uh, yeah, we uh, we look forward to keeping the discussion going.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. For more of these types of conversations, please visit us at untetheryourlife.co. You can also find us on Instagram at untetheryourlife, as well as on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms by searching for Untether Your Life. And if you did enjoy this episode, please leave us a review or share it with someone who might also benefit. Thanks, and until the next time we meet, stay untethered.